Hi, this is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends and feel free to subscribe. Hang on. We talk to the West and Alberta, Ontario, radio simulcast, and they are angry. And the president compared his impeachment inquiry to a lynching. Will he apologize for use of the word? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Please meet from the Danielle Smith Show, Global News Radio 770 CHQR Calgary, Global News Radio. Uh, Danielle Smith is with us. Danielle, thanks so much for the time. Uh, Have you got some rest? Uh, How do you feel after all of this campaign and uh, everything has settled down? I am tired. I'm a little bit punchy. I was pretty angry, but I have heard from our Premier Jason Kenney and it's made me feel much, much better. I've played a couple of the clips from his press conference yesterday where he's trying to, he's trying to channel a lot of this anger and a lot of this uh, separation talk into something positive, into getting a new deal with Canada. And I think that that, uh, if we can have some construct- constructive conversation on that, I think that that's going to be very positive. But make no mistake, Albertans are furious. Is that coming through? Yes, we talked to uh, the founder of Wexit out there yesterday, and that came through loud and clear. And it's fascinating because I think out here in the East, uh, we need to hear more of that. It, it seems that we're hearing more about climate change and and that message, not that that isn't worth hearing, but it is overpowering what you are saying out in, in the West, and that's something we have to bring together. But that being said, we're getting a lot of questions on this. Headlines right across the country, including here, about Western separation. What is the talk there about Western separation? Is this a possibility? Well, I can, you know what I'm interested in, and maybe you can provide some some feedback on this. We're surprised, and I and I think I noticed this when, when we did our last conversation. It seems like uh, the rest of the country either doesn't think about us at all, uh, or when they do think about us, they're mad at us. Like that one caller you had who still has his T-shirt from 40 years ago about Eastern bastards and bums raising yep. in the dark, and he's mad about it still, even though the vast majority of us, I'm like I was still a child when when that was when that was big. But there's still this, I think, this resentment from those who think about Alberta at all. But then there's also this difficulty of us getting our issues on the radar. We've been talking about the need for pipelines for years now. Does does it make it through at all in in in, uh, in most of the the, the discussion in, uh, for, in Ontario or even in your area, the East does not hate the West. I want I want to trans uh, translate that message right now. Um, honestly, we don't. We do not hate the West, but I do believe what has happened here in just the dialogue that I've heard throughout the election campaign is that the message in regard to climate change is overpowering the message that's coming from Alberta, and somehow we have to open those lines of communication and make it known that this is going to be a gradual transition, that we need the energy that is in the West to come out of the ground and be dispersed to various parts of, of the world that, that, that need it in order to provide a cleaner form of energy than what they are now using. That message is not being translated here in the East. Instead, I was, I was on the air uh, last night with uh, our affiliate in Toronto with Alex Pearson, and there were some guests there that were saying, you know, Alberta's got to understand it's got to transform into a different form 
form of energy. And what Ontario does not realize is that does not happen overnight. And the people of Alberta are are, are going through th- some extremely tough times right now uh, as their message, again, is somehow getting lost in the sauce. And I wish I could explain it better than that to can you, I, Can I try to make a pitch? And just because I have this opportunity, let me see if I can try to, to, to marry what I'm hearing from those who care about reducing greenhouse gas emissions and those who care about developing our resources. I, I just had an interview with Purity Canada, who is working on building a, a, a natural gas liquefaction plant in Nova Scotia. We have an existing natural gas line that's underutilized. They've got to deal with Germany because Germany doesn't want to rely on Russia. Because Russia could turn off the taps every time they want to wage economic warfare against Germany. And, and they want a reliable source of energy from us. And when we're talking about it, if we can start exporting natural gas and displacing fuels that are more polluting. Absolutely. In the case of Purity Energy or in the case of LNG Canada, each of those projects has the potential to reduce the reliance on coal and as a result reduce 60 to 90 megatons of greenhouse gas emissions in each one of those projects. Now keep in mind, Canada only produces about 712 megatons. If we produce three, if we if we manage to get these kinds of plants on both the east and the west coast, we can be net zero in our own emissions just by that alone within a matter of a few years. Danielle, you're making way too much sense here. You're making way too much sense here. You know, uh, we are fighting this battle in a silo. And that's what's happening here is that Canada is fighting this battle in a silo and doesn't realize it's a worldwide effort. And that, you know, even within our in our provinces, uh, the difference of opinion with Ontario compared to the West and, and so on and so forth. We need to open up this discussion and come out with a plan. It's not so much about how we reduce Canada's emissions. Our emissions are minimal on the world stage. It's what can we do to bring down the world emissions. And that's the conversation not only should we be having around the world, but also here. And that doesn't even seem to be happening from province to province. And that's a shame because in some ways, if you look at each of the party platforms, I mean, when Justin Trudeau switched to a net zero target for greenhouse gas emissions, that's kind of embracing exactly what I'm talking about by saying, hey, if we can reduce elsewhere, we get credit for it. Well, it, what happens is the climate change advocates are they're very extreme and the whole the whole solution for them is shut her down. Just shut it down. Stop it all. If we're moving towards a green environment, we can't be sucking it out of the ground now. And again, we've got to bridge that gap. We've got to bridge that gap. And, and again, getting back to the whole separation issue before we, we bail on this break, uh, before the break, what is the Premier saying? What What is the Premier's next, next plan of attack? The number one thing that he said is that he's not going to allow Justin Trudeau's bad policy to push him out of Canada because he is a strong Canadian first. Number two, he does not diminish at all the the separatist talk that he's hearing about. Because keep in mind, in Alberta, I mean, in some ways it's easy to just look at the dollars and cents of this, but the human side of this is people have lost their homes. People have lost their jobs. Some people have not been working for four years. Others have had to take jobs working at a fraction of what they were when they were there and in the energy business. Uh, marriages have broken up because financial stress is one of the biggest strains on a relationship. And we've had suicides as well. So there is a very human cost 
to not allowing people to have well-paying jobs and not allowing Alberta to control its own destiny. And so something he, Ontario should be able to identify with, with the loss of manufacturing jobs we've had Completely. Over the you've had the exact same experience. Yeah, and yeah. so, but he wants to channel it into, number one, new deal on equalization, one that's fair to Alberta and Saskatchewan. Uh, number two, looking at a new relationship with Canada, might involve us collecting our own pension plan, might mm. involve us uh, doing as Quebec does, running our own immigration system, having our own police force, getting tax points instead of federal transfers. Um, and it also involves us finding economic economic corridors that are pre-negotiated to allow us to get our resources to market. And that includes not just pipelines, but also includes potentially transmission lines. It also includes new rail lines so that we can get our agricultural products to market. If we can do that, I think that the country's going to be in good shape. Scott, I wonder if you could tell us from your perspective, what happened in Hamilton and area? How did how did it end up voting? It's no secret how we ended up voting in Alberta, although we, there is one NDP seat in Edmonton, but they are a pro-pipeline MP, even though they wear the NDP banner. How did things go in Hamilton? Uh, not much change here in Hamilton per se uh, itself. Uh, you know, some change uh, with far as Hamilton Center and the NDP candidate there due due to uh, another retiring. But as far as Ontario itself, I think what a lot of uh, people expected to happen was uh, as the whole blackface and the SNC Lavalin scandal and what have you uh, started uh, circulating around the Trudeau camp, that we would see the left vote split. And especially with all the popularity with Jugmeet Singh. Uh, post-election debate here. There was an awful lot of buzz about him and, and inroads he was making. Uh, that's, I think, what most thought would happen or some thought would happen in regard to uh, Ontario. That simply didn't happen. Uh, the Liberals lost about 10 seats, but that was pretty much it. And the, the Ontario brought the Liberals back. I mean, that's as, as simple as, as it is. Uh, uh, Shear did not resonate here, whether that's the Doug Ford factor or not. Doug Ford, the Premier of uh, Ontario, uh, silent through the whole campaign. And, and it was fascinating yesterday. All of a sudden he spoke. It was like hearing birds chirping in spring. <laughs> I'd never heard. I'd barely recognized his voice. Uh, we finally heard from him yesterday, but and many are debating now whether that was a good move uh, by Andrew Scheer. Should he have somehow maybe used him in limited forms and, and made him part of the strategy as opposed to just playing into the narrative and, you know, uh, covering him up in a burlap sack and putting him away somewhere until the election was over. Well, so we, we in, the some- end, in the end, Ontario Ontario, Ontario rewarded the Liberals. Well, okay, so we had somebody on our show yesterday when I was simulcasting with Ryan who said that, that, that Doug Ford's popularity is at 28%. Yeah. So as much as people are saying he could have helped, what do you think? Do you think he could have helped? No, I mean, I think hindsight's twenty twenty, and, and, and many I asked yesterday said that very same thing, that had he had come out and, and it would have only made things worse. I don't know. It, it's hard to say, but uh, it certainly did play into the, uh, the Prime Minister's narrative. I mean, every stop he made here in Ontario, he just hammered away at Doug Ford, and if you uh, elect Andrew Scheer, you're going to get more of the same sort of thing that that uh, Ontarians are are experiencing now. And and I honestly think that spooked a lot of Ontario voters. And then we watched the wave across the country. But yeah, and then you know going back to Quebec, the Bloc went in, nibbled quite away quite a bit away from uh, the uh, the Liberals, but also the NDP. So any gains that people were talking about the NDP making were pretty much a wash with what the Bloc did in Quebec. So Ontario. Mm-hmm. proved to be the you know the ground where the, the liberals won it unfortunately we're having this we're having- 
this debate about whether or not Andrew Scheer should stay on. I'm of the view he's had two years at it. He had tremendous growth over the last two years. I thought he did a great job getting having people get to know him in both of those debates. He just needs a little bit more. He needs to sound a little bit more natural, a little bit more sincere. I think that it's minor tweaks as opposed to a major overhaul. How do you, how do you see it? Do you think people are saying he should go? That he's not the right the the, the right fit to win seats in Ontario? You know, it, it's. That that's a hard question to answer. I mean, you know, I, I think it was fascinating. Uh, Ronna Ambrose on election night when she was doing some uh, some TV coverage had a shirt that said "A woman's place is," and then underneath that, the council chambers and a black <laughs> shirt, white letters, same font that's in the "Make America Great Again" hat. And I, to me, I think that was her first day of of the campaign for for the leadership. Uh, I, I think that uh, with Andrew Shear, he just stumbled on a couple of of things that he should have had better answers for, like uh, when it comes to a, a pride parade, why can't you march? And it, if if it's something that you believe in and it's your religious beliefs, then then own that, stand by that. And he did towards the end, but he didn't come out enough ahead of that. And and I think if uh, I think as well in, in the uh, debate where uh, he came out and, and just hammered Trudeau right off the top. I mean, if you're you know if that's your politics, you're loving it. But on the other hand, I think he could have said the exact Exact same thing, but a lot more prime ministerial. And uh, I just don't think he resonated uh, the way he could have. Interesting, I've got a, a, an, email from a, an email from a listener here, and they're asking you what your thoughts are in regard to Andrew Scheer. If you think that the Conservatives picked the wrong horse, and also if you think the Conservatives have gone too far to the right. Well, I would say that um, his A-team bailed on him. I think there's no question. Everyone thought that... Justin Trudeau is more than just a politician. He's a celebrity, number one, and he's also in some ways uh, royalty. He's sort of treated, maybe it's because we have a monarchic system, he's sort of treated like he's untouchable and part of our Canadian royalty, and he certainly acts like it. And so I think when he got elected, a lot of conservatives who had leadership aspirations thought, this guy's going to be here for as long as he wants to be. Absolutely. The Peter McKays, the Lisa Raitt, Ronna Ambrose, they all bailed. And and, and unfortunately, in all of this, uh, Lisa Raitt lost her seat here in Milton in Ontario, so she's not even a candidate next time out. I know, exactly. And so he was the guy who stepped up when no one else was willing to step up. No one expected Justin Trudeau might be as weak as he was going into a second term. No one even knew who Andrew Scheer was really until the campaign started. So from that perspective, I give the guy a lot of credit. Somebody made a really good point today that we have to see how he conducts himself in this opposition role now that we're in a minority parliament because there's two things. One is they don't have a majority on the committees anymore. They can't just use the hammer to shut down the Justice Committee if they Mm -hmm. want to do an SNC level in public inquiry. And and one of the things Andrew Scheer has going for him is that he used to be Speaker of the House. And as Speaker, you have to have a positive working relationship with every single member because it's your job to respect their rights as individual elected members before party considerations. And I don't think we've actually seen him be able to use that kind of diplomacy skills in the previous uh, round in, in the in the Parliament. I think we might actually see where his real skills lie this time. I think we should give him a chance. And who knows? They might decide to take Justin Trudeau out from within. If I was a, 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 a Liberal MP sitting there right now, and I saw Jody Wilson-Raybould, one of the most principled women in politics, mm. is sitting as an independent only because their leader is had was at odds with her and kicked her out. I'd be thinking, hmm, 
who do I want to take with me going forward on a long-term basis? Jody Wilson-Raymolder, this guy. And so he might not even last to the next election. And if that's the case, maybe it balances the playing field for Andrew Scheer. I think there is a lot of uh, indecision as to who's going to lead. I, I was just talking to uh, Tim Powers, vice chairman of Summa Strategies, prior to you, and was saying that, you know, even he, he was even hearing rumblings around Ottawa today that maybe the prime minister will not even complete his second term and there'll mm-hmm. be a leadership uh, contest before that even happens. You know, I think with Andrew Shear, you brought up a very valid point. Uh, we didn't know him, and then all of a sudden, boom, he's thrust into that, uh, you know, that uh, the ring of politicians and, and celebrity, so to speak, and having to debate and look well and so on and so forth. As you point out, as being Speaker of the House, there is a certain amount of diplomacy there, and we may see that finally come out and and see Andrew Scheer uh, mature as a leader as his new role uh, as opposition. It'll be interesting to see, or in his role in this minority government, uh, it'll be interesting to see how he holds Trudeau to account. I think some people thought he was speaking uh, especially with the, that first joust at the debate, it was something that yep. they didn't think to hear out of the mouth of Andrew. Oh, Shear. I think I think you're right. You know, somebody wrote him that line, and here it is. So I, I think when we find the, the, what the real Andrew Shear is all about, perhaps that will resonate. Yeah. Well, we'll see. I've got someone telling me you are dreaming, Danielle, and so I, I think our listeners want to weigh in because they may have a very different view than I do. But we've got to take a pause right now. Scott Thompson is host of Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML in Hamilton. I'm Danielle Smith, host of 770 CHQR, the Danielle Smith Show in Cal. We'll be right back after this. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. You are a part of an East Meets West radio simulcast, another with the Danielle Smith Show, Global News Radio 770 CHQR in Calgary, Alberta. Uh, Before we continue, this is an interview, a piece of an interview from yesterday with Peter Downing. He is the founder of Wexit. There is never going to be another conservative government in Canada. Western Canada is going to separate, and Alberta is going to be the first one that separates. Justin Trudeau is going to have the legacy. He talks about guns. He's done nothing to get... I was a policeman for nine years. He's done nothing to get real firearms out of the hands of real criminals. He's targeting lawful firearms owners. Our biggest supporters are firearms owners in Western Canada. Justin Trudeau is going to have the legacy of being the prime minister who lost Western Canada, and Alberta's the first one to go from Confederation. All right, a simulcast with CHML in Hamilton and CHQR in Calgary. Danielle, uh, your thoughts? I mean, uh, I was listening to a professor uh, chat last night saying that it's economically just not feasible for Alberta to separate, that it would be worse for them in the end. Well, I think... I, I think that the, the Prime Minister may have finally gotten the message that we're serious out here. Can I just play this clip that he said just a couple of seconds yep. ago? Because this might be the best answer to that question. Listen to this. We made the decision to move forward on the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion because it was in Canada's uh, interest to do so, because the environment and the economy need to go together. We will be continuing uh, with the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion. That is... Uh I think that that is the response to to Wexit, is that he obviously sees that when 200,000 people sign up overnight onto a Vote Wexit page, when you get almost 100,000 people signing a petition for Alberta to leave overnight in 24 hours, when you get the premier of the province of Alberta saying, you got to do something to affirm that you're going to continue with that expansion, he, he heard that message. And so I would say Are you that, buying that, though, Danielle? Yes. Are Albertans going to buy that? Yes, because I think what everybody worried about was that Jagmeet Singh 
being that his riding is Burnaby, which mm. is where the, the end of the, the pipeline goes through and where the holding tanks are, I think everybody thought that that might be a condition for him to, to support the government. And the fact that he cleared that up within the first uh, the first two days of being elected, that the, the expansion is going ahead, I think that's very positive. It doesn't solve all of our problems, um, because I think in Alberta, we're thinking that the Liberal government believes this should be the last pipeline build. Yeah. We still have other uh, b- pipeline projects that need to go ahead, and we need economic corridors, whether it's to Churchill so that we can export out of the Hudson Bay or whether it's up to Tuktayuktuk so that we can export out of uh, the out of the north if we can't go east and west. that we, we need to have some kind of agreement that we're going to be able to get our products to market. So uh, so do you, want, do you want to go to the lines? And yeah, go for saying? it. I'm, sure. I'm, I'm, I'm only, I'm probably Pollyanna. Ish. I try to look at the glass half full, but my uh, audience might be a little more angry today. So, so let's see what they have All to right. say. I've got. Um, by the way, I'm just the messenger here. I know we're not shooting <laughs> the messenger. Don't you worry. Let's uh, let's see what we got here. We got Joe. We got Murray. We got Blaine. Uh, we got William, and we got Brian. Uh, you probably wow. got some lineups that will go back and forth between them. Let's go to Joe first. Joe, go ahead. What's on your mind today? Oh, thanks for having me. I, uh, one of the few times I actually want to disagree with you. I don't think Alberta separation is about economics and pipelines anymore. It's cultural. I think we are distinct, and I think uh, it's time for uh, the intelligentsia and the uh, poets and artists and things to get on board and and, uh, really build a new nation. Joe, thank you for that. So th- there is this sense that if you look at how blue we went, some of our ridings went 85% conservative. We're as much a distinct society as Quebec are. It might not be a linguistic difference, but there's a cultural difference. I think you'll find a lot of people feel that way, Scott. All right, let's see what Dave has to say. Dave, in the hammer, go ahead. What are your thoughts? Well, I'm glad Trudeau mentioned the pipeline. I think that's uh, definitely key to keeping the West uh, somewhat, uh, how do I put it, happy or making it relieved. I mean, it's t- taken its toll on the on the on the West, this uh, not having a pipeline and the oil industry sagging. It's cost a lot of jobs and a lot of pain, and a lot of people out here, especially in Hamilton, the manufacturing base that disappeared, can feel for the people out West. And uh, I don't understand why you haven't countered this environmental message that they want this stuff stopped right away. It's, even the experts say this stuff that they want is a minimum of 50 years away. So I'm hoping that... Uh, you get the message out and realize, people, that this is going to take decades to happen. And in the meantime, we need to uh, support a country of uh, 37 million people have a half-decent standard of living. And the way to do that is by exporting things, especially resources. That's a good point, Dave. Wow. Uh, you know, again, many, and Dave is echoing this, that the message is not getting out, that yeah. uh, the, the, the climate change activists, and again, not to sit here and debate that, they are getting all of the attention and they say, shut it down, shut can it I down. Just, can Go I ahead. add one more thing to the mix there? Even if you think that you're going to have a hybrid car in the future or an electric car in the future, Asphalt comes from bitumen. So roads are still going to be needed to be made, even if you have everybody on an electric fleet. And that the best source of that is going to be right here from Alberta. And that's why it's such a valuable product, if only we could get it to market. I've got uh, Murray on the line. Murray, go ahead. What's your thought today? Well, hi. Like, I just don't understand why a railroad can run through Canada but people are against the pipeline going through Canada. It's unbelievable. Yeah. And, and I'll tell you, uh, something that came to mind today was a truck driver being beaten to death in Los Angeles years ago. And 
what he said afterwards, can't we all just get along? <laughs> Murray, thank you for that. You know what I'm hearing, though? Like, I, I, whenever I talk to you, I'm always surprised at how many in your audience are very sympathetic to what we're what we're experiencing here. Let's see if we can get a little bit more of that, Scott. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is about to take another turn. Oh, darn uh, it. Okay. An email from Larry says... Why don't they, uh, why do they, or why did they expand so much knowing, uh, hang on, that's the wrong one here. Um, they don't understand Hamilton either. Migrate this way once in a while. And I guess I'll go uh, to what the other caller just said in the sense that have you, has the West made enough of an effort to prove their point? Have they made enough of an effort to counter what we are hearing from the other extreme on this? Well, it's a good question. I, I think the energy industry did not. I think the energy industry just assumed that because people go to their vehicles and fill up their cars every few days, that they knew how much they relied because on out the here, energy sector. Out here, Danielle, it's the science, and you can't argue with the science. The science is the science is the science. That's what you'll hear as soon as you start to have a debate similar to the one we're having. Again, you know what? one you, extreme to the other. You know what, amen, Scott? Let's get back to the science. The science does not say humanity is going extinct in 10 years if we stop using fossil fuels. That is what extremists are saying. They are misrepresenting the science. The IPCC report does not say that. And so here's what, is, what has happened, is that we have allowed the science to be hijacked by people who have an agenda to shut down a particular industry. What the science says is, yeah, there's going to be a potential increase in extreme weather events. Yeah, we're going to have certain areas of the world that are going to have impacts. And now we've got to talk about what to do about it. I think anyone who thinks that we stop hurricanes or we stop flooding or we stop forest fires because Canada kills its fossil fuel industry is not telling the truth. And so we are still going to have to deal with the impacts of severe weather events. And we also, at the same time, have to make sure that we're dealing with the biggest emitters. The biggest emitters a growing China, a growing India, United States. We've got, and we have got to use the solutions that we have at our disposal right now. But yes, I agree with you, Scott. Let's get back to the science and let's stop pretending that the Elizabeth Mays of the world saying that, and the human, and the Extinction Rebellion people are reflecting the scientific consensus. They are absolutely not. I do believe that each one of these groups is operating in a silo and refuses to talk to the other or simply can't get the message out. Again, I think what's important in this discussion is it appears that Canada is trying to uh, is trying to fix the world all by themselves. Canada cannot save the planet. They're a part of the solution. And I think what needs to happen is Canadians have to stop looking them at themselves with this really clean, uh, uh, shiny image that, that we're the best at everything we do. And we have to be the trendsetter when it comes to uh, renewable energy and, re- and renewable technology. And, and of course we should, but we should be this from a global perspective, not just Canada. We hear constantly, you know, per, uh, per capita Canadians produce more uh, more uh, carbon emissions than than blah 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 blah. Well, we've got a giant country and not many people. Lo- there's, there's things we have to take into consideration, and we have to fight this battle globally, not just within uh, the shores of Canada. Absolutely, and that's why I'm such a big fan of natural gas because you can't expand intermittent energy sources like solar and wind without having natural gas as a backup. As much as they like to say batteries are the solution, guess what happens with batteries? You have to mine lithium. You've got to mine cobalt. There's all kinds of environmental issues that you're doing as a trade-off. The very best backup is a fossil fuel. And I think that natural gas provides a good transition energy to get to lower total global emissions until something else. Maybe 
Bill Gates will save us with his new nuclear technology, if anybody is open-minded enough to try that. Another issue coming out of uh, email and such is gun control. Uh, Here's one from our side from Rich. A big issue for people in Toronto is high gun crime. Most are illegal. Regardless, they want tougher gun control. How does this and the West feel about this? We'll take this perhaps to the next segment. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Got a bunch of people saying, stop jibber-jabbering and let people talk. So let me read a few texts out. Why did you suddenly become so naive on uh, to actually believe Trudeau, Danielle? Come on. Another person, Danielle, are you happy now that Sunny Ways will go ahead with the pipeline? So what's next? Another person saying, I'm not going to believe anything until I start seeing shovels in the ground. And mm. so there's a lot of people who, as I say, not everybody agrees with me. I tend to look th- at things from a positive perspective. People are mad. Another person here says, no offense, Hamilton, but not interested in 30 more years for East to care, for the East to care, start the divorce. That's uh, some of our textures. I've got a few calls that are on the line here as well. So let's go to, to Blaine, see what's on his mind today. Blaine, go ahead. Your thought today. Yeah, good morning. Hey. Um, there's, there's a really good documentary that'll kind of sum up everything you guys are talking about called Over a Barrel. Tell, to just explain when, to people what it is so that they know why they should watch it. Oh, it kind of links everything together as to why the protesters come out of the woodworks to protest. How, like, it just it basically explains really well how companies from out of our country are attacking our oil and gas industry and, like, every kind of industry we have in our country in Canada. All right, Blaine, thank you for that. It also, I've watched it. It's Vivian Krause. I don't know if you've ever interviewed Vivian, Scott, Vivian Krause, Scott. No, I don't think I have, no. So Vivian Krause, is, uh, she's the, uh, she has a website called Fair Questions, and she was interviewed, I think she got national profile when she was interviewed by Wendy Mesley from CBC, talking about all of the American Foundation funding coming into Canada, and it's, a, it's several hundred million yeah. dollars to landlock Alberta oil. So she's just done a documentary. It's called Over, the, Over a Barrel, and she interviews First Nations communities, so First Nations can talk about how they have been manipulated into supporting the same cause. <laughs> Boy, we, we've heard lots of that. Lots of the American influence is coming in over the border and, and some of these agencies that, um, that, that sort of take the science and, and, and alter it to fit their narrative. Uh, you know, I think what's important here is that uh, the East and the West understand where each is coming from. And as we're having this broadcast, you can really understand that there's just a massive gap here. There's a massive gap between what you want and what you think and, and what people people here want and think. And and here's hoping that with discussion like this, and, and as as your callers were saying, your, your texters were saying, your emailers were saying, when I heard that clip from Trudeau, I'm thinking there's no way the, the West is going to buy this. Yeah, and that's pretty Where, cool. Where's the action? Where's the <laughs> action? Until exactly. you start seeing dirt flying, I mean, come on. It's true. And you know what? You asked the question before the break about the, the gun issue. It certainly is an issue, but I would have to say the pipeline issue has been the one that has dominated our calls. I'm sure if, if there may be some of our listeners here who want to weigh in and, and take that question. From, uh, uh, from I got a call here. Let's, uh, Dennis, on that issue and I think some pipeline as well. Dennis, go ahead. What are you, what's your thoughts for the West? Oh, my thoughts are actually more Western than Eastern. <laughs> I'm from the Ontario, lived here three generations, both uh, cattle and horse farms. And I look at the situation from the point of view is that it's nice to say, as we just threw out um, our provincial leader for somebody else who was trying to force na- this whole idea of get off gas and get onto this other renewable energies. And what did it cost us? 
It costs us huge because we're just not ready to do it. The, the infrastructure to do that, to get the electricity and everything else into place just isn't there. We need oil. That pipeline should have been built a long time ago. There's no reason for it. It's really pathetic that BC stands there and says, hey, you can't come through us, but yet we're going to pull coal out of the ground and ship it to China, yeah. polluted <laughs> even more, when this is a cleaner source right here, and we should be selling it to China. It, it's just bureaucracy gone stupid. As far as gun control, name me one murder in Toronto that's happened with a shotgun, which happened with a rifle. Very few of them in the basis for what we look at. We're looking at handguns. There's a total disconnect for what people actually need and what our politicians are giving for our people. Oh, right on. And it's, 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 you, a gang, it's a gang problem and it's a crime problem. That's the way it's got to be addressed. I totally agree with you. What is your there. relationship with BC now? Uh, our relationship with BC is great with those who are in in interior BC, great with the First Nations along a route that wants to get a pipeline or two built. Uh, but I would say that with the lower mainland, we still have some work to do. That's sad. It really is. I mean, you think of the divisiveness uh, out east in Quebec and then the divisiveness between BC and Alberta and then east and west. I mean, how did we get here? It's unbelievable. All well, right. and we did used to be such great friends with British Columbia as well. It's created some tension, but um, I think part of the issue is that you'll see Alberta work more closely with those friends and neighbours that are aligned with us politically. And even in BC, they're aligned on the issue of developing natural gas. So that may be a place to be, to begin. i got a few more calls here. Should, yep, should go I ahead. Go for them? Let's go to, uh, to William. William, go ahead your thought today. Hey, if we put our Western point of view away from this election, you got 157 seats being corrupt, ethic problems, running a deficit. Nobody even cares how bad this deficit's going to be. And he can't get the farmer's product to market. And he's still got 157 seats, even if we forget the Western view. William, thank you for that. And that's what a lot of people are frustrated by. Like, why couldn't people see through that? He's a terrible leader on just objective counts. Why, why would he have gotten such a large mandate? I don't know. Okay, <laughs> Again, that's fair I, enough. I, I think it's the lack of opposition. It's, it, you know, I, I think that uh, a lot of people uh, didn't know Andrew Shear. I think uh, we, Frank, uh, one, one of our emailers just uh, texted or just emailed in that said uh, his last speech, his last speech after the election uh, results were announced were perhaps his most passionate speech. Where was that uh, earlier on in the campaign? Uh, again, Frank goes back to leadership. He just didn't think the leadership was there this time to to uh to overtake trudeau it's as simple as that i got brian on the line as well brian go ahead your thought today Uh, good morning danielle yeah go ahead okay i called about an hour and a half ago because of a gentleman that was saying that when they play the canadian anthem when the maple leafs come to uh play the calgary flames we should all sit down yeah (laughs) i disagree with him i think that's disrespectful but he does have a a glimmer of an idea and i also have something else to say too well tell us what the glimmer of an idea is what do you want to see instead and, well, uh, instead of uh, singing the national anthem, how about singing this land is my land, this land is your land? Secondly, you just hit on it there a bit, too, about how uh, Ontario decides who's going to be PM before we even get the vote in the West. How about an uh, equal elected Senate? That way every province has the same say. 
Ryan, thank you for that. I don't know, is Senate reform an issue in uh, in Ontario? It's certainly something we talk a lot about out here. One thing I can tell you on the Leafs uh, front, uh, the same thing happens when the Leafs play in Ottawa, so that's not really much of a protest for You know, Calgary. I had somebody else say that we should all be wearing our I love Canadian oil and gas t-shirts. Those are great. Game. Yeah, you, You've totally. got to send me one of those out. I'll spread uh, the word Scott, this way. I absolutely will. We're coming down into the, the, the ending moments here. Do you have any, one more word for us from Hamilton? Uh, the only thing I can say is it is time that both sides of this discussion are heard. It's time that we uh, put the rhetoric aside, examine the science, and and look at every view within this province, every pro- or every every country, every province within the country. And I think it is so important to do that. We are just not communicating with each other. Well, I'm so glad you and I are communicating. Let's make sure we do this again sometime. All right? Absolutely. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Now hang on, let's head south of the border. Some uh, top Republicans have broken with the president uh, this yesterday on Tuesday over his comparison of the impeachment inquiry to a lynching. Uh, to talk more about all of this, Aaron Edinger is with us, assistant professor, Department of Political Science, Carleton University, and on the line now. Aaron, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you so much. Your thoughts on what the president has said, uh, does this change anything? Is it just more of the same? Well, uh, regarding the, the lynching comment, it is, it is both more of the same and a kind of a signal that Trump is increasingly, you know, out of options here. Right? The testimony that we heard the other day from William Taylor is really quite brutal for his case against a quid pro quo. And it doesn't really surprise me that he would, that Trump himself would overreact to it, right? Talk, uh, go into a bit more detail on that testimony. Why is this different from others? Well, this one's different from others because, you know, this gets us one step away from basically proof of a quid pro quo, right? What William Taylor has said over the last couple of days is that there was kind of a shadow foreign policy being run by Trump loyalists with Ukraine to gather damaging information against Joe Biden. Now, again, we cannot say yet that there is a quid pro quo directed by Donald Trump himself. But if you read that 16 page testimony, the people that that uh, that Taylor identifies are one step away from the president and perhaps calling those people in to testify before the impeachment committee might get us to that point where a quid pro quo has been confirmed. Uh, does Donald Trump doesn't seem to hide from what he has done? Does he realize with the call to the Ukraine president, does he realize what he's done is wrong or does he just think it should be right? I doubt that he thinks that it's wrong. I very seriously even though that's that. the law. Uh, well, I mean, the, the the law is is a kind of a murky in all of right. This yeah. The President of the United States has very, very wide powers to conduct foreign policy, and so much of this is very poorly defined. Right? So there's no specific law you can point to to say that Donald Trump you know, broke it. However, his actions with regards to sort of co-opting uh, American foreign policy to serve as private interests do bring us very close to that uh, crimes and misdemeanors standard for impeachment. He doesn't seem to hide it. No, he does not. And that's what makes him so absolutely amazing. Right? Presidents, you know, for you know, as long as history has been recorded, at least had some degree of shame regarding these things. Right? Richard Nixon tried to hide his, his, you know, his, his criminality, or Bill Clinton tried to obscure his indiscretions. Donald Trump seems to own it. And that's what makes him so interesting and so, so, like, so remarkable that he draws strength from his 
political base on the strength of his ability to just push back against even legitimate criticism. Yeah, it doesn't matter what the issue is, uh, black is now white, or vice versa. Yeah, indeed. And, and it's, it befuddles us as political observers, me as a political science professor, uh, because Donald Trump seems to be laying waste to every assumption that we have made about mm. politics, mm. right? about how government works in a democratic country. Right? There are institutions in place that check him. So we got checks and balances in the system. At some point, you know, norms of reasonable behavior kick in in order to, you know, constrain people who stray over the line. But that is not the case here. All right. What about the lynching comment? I mean, this strikes right to the nerve of American history here. Uh, what about this comment uh, itself? Does, does this change anything? Uh, it, it's, it's embarrassing. I don't think it changes anything because it's the kind of thing we have come to expect from him. Right? He's, he's, he's oblivious to history. He doesn't care a whit about the sensitivities he is totally oblivious to all of those features. What I think is interesting is not just to see what Trump says in, with regards to lynching, as foolish as it is, but how and to what degree it is parroted by his supporters. Hmm. That's and my he, next question. Is, is, is he distancing himself from the, from the rest of Republicans? Are Republicans finally, re, or vice versa, are Republicans finally distinct, distancing themselves from the president here? Some of them. Right? We saw the other day Mitch McConnell... Uh, talking about or sort of putting a little bit of distance between him and Trump. McConnell has long been a Trump supporter. But yesterday you also saw Lindsey Graham, Senator. Lindsey How do you Graham. explain that? He, he, he doubled down for Donald he, Trump. He doubled down. It's astounding. It's, it's remarkably ignorant of history, especially a senator from the South. Right? He, is, he is throwing in everything he's got with Donald Trump on this one. What I think is really interesting to watch and what I'll be looking forward to over the next week as more people testify is what senators start to put distance between themselves and the president. Because if impeachment comes to a trial in the Senate, uh, to impeach the president, they will need, you will need about 15 Republican senators to vote against the president, to impeach the president. If more and more people like McConnell or others start to shy away from Trump, uh, we might see the end of a Trump presidency and say hello to President Mike Pence. Uh, we, <laughs> I'm not sure what, I'm not I sure know. how that's going to be accepted. Um, we talked about what Lindsey Graham's uh, reaction was to all of this. The opposite of what Mitch McConnell's was. How do you explain that? I mean, shouldn't even you know, shouldn't there be backroom discussions about what the Republicans' position needs to be on this? Oh yeah, I mean, in the past, in in, in over the last year or so, the. Republicans have been lockstep in support of Donald Trump. We start we're seeing some fractions in that facade here, right? We're, start, we're starting to see, you know, the typical loyalists starting to break away a little bit, and a little bit of daylight between those Trump loyalists and the president himself could spell very bad things for Trump. What about Republicans that do speak out? Are they still too scared to do so? Mitch McConnell didn't have a problem uh, stating his point on the, lynching, on the lynching comment. Can you plainly disagree or publicly disagree with the president and then just move on as if it never happened? Uh, not if you're a Republican, right? The, the Trump base is so fired up that if you are a, if you are a Republican senator or a congressman or in the House of Representatives, 
you might be punished and punished swiftly and brutally at the next election. And we're only about a year out from a major election election period. And these people want to retain their jobs. They want to keep their seats. Right? So speaking out comes with serious consequences. Right? But now it is, you know, gut check time for these these people. You know, to what degree do they want to uphold the principles on which the country is founded and basic norms of decency versus keeping their jobs? Why aren't uh, Americans or why aren't those that are upset about what the president said upset about what Lindsey Graham said? Uh, I, I, that's a great question. I mean, they they should be, but I think at this point, all of this has been, you know costed into people's calculations. Like they expect Trump to say these kinds of things. They sort of expect Lindsey Graham to be his, uh, you know, his parrot alongside. So none of this is especially surprising. It's just one more, it's just one more thing to, you know, facepalm about. Uh, what can the president say that's more moving, disgusting, pick your word, uh, than what he has already said? How far does this go? Well, this goes all the way to the core of the Trump presidency, right? What, what Donald Trump can do, or what the people around him can do, is to actually address the substance of the uh, Ukraine conversation, right? The conversation from July, uh, July 25th, which spurred on all of these impeachment, uh, these impeachment proceedings, right? They need to address why Trump did what he did and explain to the American people that that was in the national interest of the country. It is their inability to do so that is perpetuating all of this because, you know, this whole situation stinks and the impeachment inquiry has latched onto something here. Can Americans identify with the situation regarding the UK, the Ukraine president? Can can they relate to that? Because through the whole Comey and the Mueller investigation, everything seemed to get lost in the sauce. Is this something they can identify with? Yeah, this one's a lot easier to to get a hold of. Like once you get past kind of the complexities of what goes, what's going on in the background, this is a simple case of three hundred ninety one million dollars being withheld in exchange for political favors. That is very simple to understand. Right? And once we recognize that, I think the American people, with their understandably limited time to digest all this information, can process it in ways that they could process the Mueller report. Uh, Aaron Edinger is with us, uh, Assistant Professor, Department of Political Science, Carleton University. You know, I thought that the whole G7 uh, thing at his golf club would resonate with Americans because that's something that takes it away from politics and everybody knows, well, this is a conflict of interest. He's holding a, a government event at his private facility. Uh, mm-hmm. did, did, sure did. did that resonate? Like, I would thought that plain and simple example would resonate with Americans more than anything, more than all of this stuff, because it's too much into the political weeds. Yeah, absolutely. And it did, right? You'll, we would notice that Trump withdrew that uh, request to hold it at the Doral Resort. Is the damage done? Is the damage done there? Or uh, does oh, everybody yeah. just move on? Every, I think in that case, the damage was done and everybody moved on because, well, the G7 will not be held there anymore. They're going to find a second location. And Donald Trump sort of uh, takes the hit on the 24-hour the news cycle and moves on. That story did not have legs. This Ukraine story does. Uh, so, uh, obviously, they, did, they were successful then in nipping this in the bud by killing it. Yeah, they did the absolute right thing to kill the Doral Resort G7 thing.
does but most might must have looked at this and thought you know he's going to get renos the taxpayer is going to pay for it um there's going to need upgrades this is a failing resort this is going to be huge for the brand uh again even though it's canceled does it not say more even his reaction to this which is you know people are talking too much about it so i got to get rid of it it's are you kidding me I mean, I, I can't believe that people even can't, you know, even though this was canceled, can't relate to this and think there's other stuff going on here. If, the, if this is the sort of thing that's going on regarding his golf club, uh, his golf clubs, what's going on in regard to world diplomacy? Oh, yo, absolutely. Right. We know we, we know that Donald Trump has been using his office to enrich himself. Just think of how many world leaders and delegations have booked a couple of rooms, booked a couple of suites at the Trump Hotel down the street from the White House. Right. We know that Donald Trump and his family members have been leveraging that name in order to improve their uh, their bank account situation. We know all of this. Right. We know all of this all, already. And the Doral Resort situation from last week is just one more drop in the bucket of something that has already been costed into our interpretation of what Donald Trump is all about. And that is, you know, a selfish, self-regarding guy who's not necessarily working in the best interest of the United States. How close are the Republicans to Fisher cut bait here? Oh, my goodness. That's the trillion dollar question here. I think they're still a ways away. Uh, from from tossing Trump over the side in uh, in an impeachment uh, trial, uh, what ha- would have to come to light is absolutely clear and unambiguous evidence that Trump did something plainly wrong, right? And if that evidence that he did something plainly wrong comes up, uh, you know, costs them seats, costs them political support in 2020, that's when you might see them jump ship but we're not there yet so do you think this whole ukraine issue has legs do you think it it could be the straw that breaks the camel's back here oh yeah oh yes it is and if the impeachment inquiry manages to subpoena successfully the likes of rudy giuliani or the eu ambassador gordon sondland or some of the officials who are in on these phone call conversations uh that might be the smoking gun. That might be the straw that breaks the back because those people were likely in the room. Do you think the lynching comment is just there as a distraction? Drop, another, drop another it, bomb and run away? He, he might have you know, done this as a smoke screen and exactly bomb and run away. Uh, and if that was the case, it didn't work because it just gets us talking about what's behind the lynching comment. Does, he have, to, story. does he have to address that further? Does, can he just let that go or does he have to apologize for that? I think he should apologize, but I don't think he will. And frankly, Donald Trump isn't the kind of guy who apologizes, and there's really no gains to be had from apologizing. What about with the base, though, and those senators you're talking about? I mean, when you get uh, the House Republican leader uh, saying he wouldn't use those words, as we've already talked about what Mitch McConnell has said, uh, given the history, I would not compare this to a lynching. Uh, he's, he's got some very key Republicans against him on this. Is that resonating with the president? I, I doubt it. I very seriously doubt it because he doesn't really care for the sensibilities and sensitivities. He knows this kind of thing riles up his base, and that's the really the only public support that he can rely on at this point. I mean, I doubt that there are many African Americans in the United States right now who are going to rethink their opposition to Donald Trump because he apologized for the lynching comment. Yeah, that's a good point. So, how how give us a bit of a timeline? When do you think this will come to a head in regard to the Ukraine issue? Ooh. Uh, that's a great question. That depends on the kind of testimony that we hear uh, behind those closed doors over the next couple of weeks. Right? Uh, once the House 
uh, draws up the articles of impeachment and sends it on to the Senate, which could be in the next couple of months. That's when we're going to see this story really pick up steam and the uh, and the, the stakes raised super high. So, and you think this will have more of an impact than the Mueller investigation? Yes, it will, because it's it's more understandable to most people. It is not obscured. And frankly, the Mueller investigation was very, very constrained to a very narrow set of uh, search parameters here. This Ukraine inquiry is much, much broader and has much broader powers of subpoena. Uh, do you think this was a distraction from what's happening with the, the Syrian Kurds and, and Turkish issue in regard to there and, and ceasefire that really isn't? Um, is this a distraction from that? <laughs> I, I don't want to call it a distraction because the Ukraine situation is very, very serious. I mean, we're talking about 10,000 people or more who have been killed over the last five years in a war, right? That runs parallel with the crisis in Syria, which is a whole other very serious foreign policy file that is not getting the attention that it needs from the president and his close advisors and the public more generally. Are we just in for more of the same? For uh, that. Oh, yeah, and I suspect it's going to get worse as the election uh, nears. We're now 12 or th- about 12 or 13 months away from, from the presidential election in November 2020. As it gets closer and as the stakes get higher for Donald Trump, both personally and professionally, uh, you know, we, we might see Donald Trump as, you know, as an, as an animal with his back up against the wall here, lashing out in ways that we haven't seen. Does he so seem far. to be more unpredictable, more agitated now? than in the past? Or has he, has he always been that way? Is he always the same? I mean, there are things like the lynching comment that, that, that you know, that's, in, that's on the Mount Rushmore of bad things that Donald yeah. Trump has said over the last four years or so. Right? Uh, we might see this kind of thing get ratcheted up. And, you know, for the last three and a half, four years, we've been saying that Donald Trump has reached the limit of yeah. what he can say. I don't think so anymore. Good point. Aaron Edinger has been with us, Assistant Professor, Department of Political Science, Carleton University. Aaron, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you very much. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.